0: The following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. We can turn to Romans chapter 3, and uh, we are going to continue our study through Romans this morning, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 8. But uh, before we read the text, I think we all know what it's like to have someone ask you an awkward question. Have you ever had someone ask you an awkward question and, uh, and uh, you, uh, you, you'd rather just ignore it or uh, pretend like you didn't hear it? Well, we have a particular child in our family who is a master of the awkward question. And uh, he's a people watcher. And uh, and so he he notices people whether you know at church or in a store or in a restaurant and and if he notices some something that's odd to him something strange to him something that they you know the way they look or what they're wearing he's not afraid to ask about it whether asking them or asking us and so we've uh, listened in and we've also fielded some awkward questions about people's weight their skin color. Um, tattoos, smoking, and everything else imaginable that's awkward. And, uh, and, and he has created some very awkward moments for mom and dad, you know, where, where we wish we could just take that question and stuff it back in his mouth and, and, uh, and, and uh, you know, back up time for a moment. And, uh, and most of the time, it's because it's just kind of embarrassing, uh, but, but sometimes... Uh, he's asked some questions that are really hard to answer, and 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 especially in the moment, uh, very uh, very hard to to know quite what to do with it. And similarly, uh, sometimes people ask us questions about the Bible or ask questions about theology that we're not naturally inclined to discuss. You know, maybe it's con- it's a controversial issue, and you don't want to have a debate, you don't want things to get fired up, and so. You know, maybe uh, you know when someone brings up questions about Calvinism and Arminianism—that's the the classic one—or uh, questions about eschatology. Uh, maybe you just prefer to to avoid that altogether and not get into that sort of debate, or, or maybe you dodge other questions that uh, seemingly attack the very foundations of our faith. You know, so as a parent, maybe your kid asks you, or says something to the effect of, "I don't know if I believe the Bible is true," or. How do I know God is real if I can't see Him? And they ask a question like that, and you're not quite sure what to do with it. And so you kind of, and maybe you feel a little bit threatened by the question because, I mean, they're asking something very foundational, something at the core of our faith. And, and so it can be intimidating to know what to do with a question like that. And so sometimes you would prefer to just pretend like that question didn't exist. And uh, and unfortunately, sometimes what happens is is that the sincere doubter is left without answers, and they're left with remaining doubts. Well, thankfully, the Apostle Paul was not one to run from a hard question, even if it was challenging. And in our text for today, he addresses four difficult but very important questions regarding the doctrine that he's laid out in Romans 1 through 2. So let's read uh, Romans 3. 1 through 8. It says, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great, in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar as is written, that you, are, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I am speaking in human terms. May it never be. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not, as we are slanderously reported in some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. Now, this is a tricky passage of Scripture. And i we've got some visitors today, and I kind of feel bad for those of you who are uh, jumping into our series today for the first time, because uh, this is a tricky passage of Scripture. And and, and it's helpful to have the context of what we've looked at in Romans 1 and 2 to really understand what he's going to say. So I'll do my best today to, uh, to keep this at a level that we can understand, but you're also going to need to think and, and follow along uh, with, with some kind of complex arguments that Paul is making in this passage. But even though it's kind of a tricky passage, I think you can immediately recognize that Paul is opening some huge cans of worms. And he is going to squash those worms in this passage. And in so doing, he deals with some very foundational issues that are at the very core of, how we, of what we understand God to be and how we understand God's will. And so, so this is an important, even though it is a complicated passage of Scripture, one of the more complicated passages in all of the book of Romans. So the first question that Paul asks is, what benefit is there in being a Jew? Now, now probably most of us in this room are not too concerned about that question because we're not Jews. We're Gentiles, all right? But, but any Jew of Paul's day who would have read Romans chapters 1 through 2 would have been asking this very question. And that's because Paul argued in Romans 2 that the Jews will not get preferential treatment at the final judgment. No, instead both Jews and Gentiles, will be judged fairly based on the revelation that God has given them. And he also said that because of that, most of the Jews are not going to be welcomed into heaven. Most are going to be condemned to hell. And in a more surprising twist, Paul ends chapter 2 by saying that Gentile Christians who believe the gospel are actually going to leap many of the Jews in line And they will be welcomed into heaven, even as many of the Jews are condemned to hell. And and folks, for a Jew, those are devastating claims. Devastating claims. And therefore, Paul rightly anticipates that his Jewish readers are going to be asking these questions in verse 1. Well, what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? So, So in other words... You know, Paul just said that having the law and circumcision are not going to get the Jews preferential treatment at the judgment. But but the Jew says, well, wait a minute, Paul. I mean, God said in the law that, that we are his chosen people. And, and God uh, said that he set his unique love on us, that he loved us in a way that he doesn't love the other nations of the world. So, so are you denying all of that? Are you rejecting what the Old Testament says? Well, Paul answers in verse 2. He says, the advantage is great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. So, so Paul answers, yes, having God's word and being responsible to proclaim it are huge advantages. Now, when he talks here about the oracles of God, and, and that, of course, uh, would describe God's speech or God's words. And of course, these words are incredible blessing. To have God's special revelation is a privilege that, that Romans 1 said, many of the peoples of the earth have not enjoyed. But in contrast, God spoke audibly to the Jews on Mount Sinai. And then he wrote down his law with his own hand on, on the tablets of stone. And, of course, then we know that in the centuries after that, that God gave Israel numerous inspired prophets and biblical authors who, who wrote the remainder of the Old Testament. So, so the result was that God gave the Jews a book, our Old Testament, which is unlike anything that he had given anyone else in the world. And Moses celebrated this incredible privilege in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, which say, what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on Him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? As Psalm 147 verses 19 and 20 add, He declares His word to Jacob, His speaking there of Israel, His statutes and His ordinances to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation. And as for his ordinances, they have not known them. Praise the Lord. So, so God was clear in the Old Testament that he had given Israel an incredible privilege in giving them the scriptures. And as well, I think it needs to be pointed out that he mentions the word entrusted here in verse 2. And that indicates that it wasn't just that, that God gave them all this so that they would hide it from the rest of humanity. No. No. God entrusted them as well with proclaiming this message to all the nations of the earth. And we saw in chapter 2 that the Jews saw that as a great honor, a great privilege, that God had made them the teachers of the nations with the truth that they had received. So so Paul answers this first question with an absolute yes. Now the Jews are not going to get a free pass at the final judgment. They will be judged fairly like everyone else. But in this life, God had certainly blessed them in some very unique ways. And of course, the application for us would be that we are blessed to have God's Word in our hands. You know, there are a few greater blessings. I mean, he says here, the first blessing, and maybe the first blessing that we enjoy, is that we have the Bible. You know, there there are a few blessings in life that you can enjoy that are greater, more greater privilege than than to be able to read the Bible and hear and read the speech of God. You can meet with God in your Bible. You can hear from Him. And it's also a great honor to be entrusted with proclaiming God's Word to to the people of our community and and to the ends of the earth. So, So I think it's good to just be reminded today You know, don't ever get so used to having a Bible or having 10 Bibles or having access to 30 different translations on your phone that that you lose sight of what a privilege it is to have the Bible. You know, there's all the time people are, you know, saying, I wish God would just tell me what to do. I wish I could just hear God speak. Well, Well, you have it right here. And this book is an incredible blessing of God. But don't just sit there and think, yeah, it's great to have 30 Bibles. I mean, read your Bible, study it, meditate on it, obey it, and then proclaim it to to everyone around you. And then I think another very appropriate application of verses 1 and 2 is that you should give thanks if God has given you the privilege of growing up in a Christian family and in a gospel-preaching church. You now sometimes I think we are very good, and you know, I hear this you know, uh, from different people, that we are very good at spotting everything that was wrong in our family, and everything that was wrong in the church where we grew up. And and so, you know, people that grew up in Christian homes and even in gospel preaching churches, I mean they can sit there and they can talk to you for two hours about everything that their parents did wrong and everything that was wrong with the church they grew up in, and and we can moan and complain and bicker. And and I don't doubt that there were problems in your family and in your church. There's problems in our church because we're sinners. Your parents are sinners. Your pastors are sinners. But but you know, children and teens who are in this room, you know, if God has given you the privilege of growing up in a Christian home, and and God's given you the privilege of attending a church where even right now you're you're listening to God's word taught, it might not be perfect. But it is a tremendous privilege that you ought to give thanks for. And if you're an adult now and you had that privilege as a child, I mean, yeah, it's it's okay to lament what your parents and church could have done better. But don't lose sight of the gift it is to grow up with access to God's Word and being taught the Scriptures. It is, as Paul says here, a great advantage. And then verse 3 raises a second question. And that question is well, well, let's read the verse and then we'll talk about the question. It says, Well, what then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? So, so you can see there on the screen, uh, I, my summary here is, is that this man is asking Does Israel's sin mean that God was unfaithful to the covenant? Now, Now, again, in light of chapter 2, I think we can understand why the Jews are asking this question. Because God had made incredible promises to the nation of Israel. He had told them, you are my chosen people. And and he had said that someday I'm going to give you a great kingdom. And and someone from the line of David is going to rule over this kingdom forever and ever. And I'm going to save the the, the Jewish nation. Last Sunday night we talked about that fact. That that eventually God's going to save the entire Jewish nation at the last days. And Paul, but, but Paul just said, you know, that despite all these blessings that God had given to Israel and all these promises that God had given them, you know, Paul just said that most of the Jews had violated the covenant and that they were going to be condemned to hell as a result. And of course, as well at the time that, that Paul wrote Romans, they're under Roman rule. They're not a great kingdom with, with power and glory and and magnificence. So so if that's all taking place, does all of that mean that God had been unfaithful and that God had not kept His promises to Israel? Of course, people today ask similar questions all the time. Any time life gets difficult, things are hard, things are not going the way we want them to go, aren't we tempted to question the goodness and the faithfulness of God? To say, if God was faithful, my circumstances would be better. So so what do we do with that? Is God unfaithful? Well, well, Paul answers in verse 4. He says, may it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So, So the first answer that Paul gives is, May it never be. So the old King James had "God forbid," and uh, and Paul uses this uh, phrase that the Greek phrase is meganoito uh, several times in Romans when addressing challenges to the gospel, and and you could you could also uh, the idea would just be perish the thought. Uh, again, I mean the literal like, "may it never be" is a very literal translation of the phrase, and it means absolutely not. That that is. I mean, Paul is trying to deny that idea as strongly as possible. And the point here is, is that God cannot be unfaithful. We cannot accuse Him of unfaithfulness. Because God never changes. He is always true to His promise. And He is always good. And so if you're ever tempted to question the faithfulness of God, Paul says, may it never be. God is always faithful. And then he adds a fascinating statement. He says, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. And that is a great statement. Because sometimes our circumstances create an overwhelming fog. And we are in these dark circumstances, and we can't imagine how God could be faithful when I'm going through all of this over here. And sinners will sometimes boldly declare that the darkness of our world denies the faithfulness of God. God cannot be good and the world be this bad. And he's either able not to solve all the problems, he's too weak to solve it, or he's not really a good God. But, but Paul here gives us a wonderful anchor when we are tempted to question the faithfulness of God. Let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. I love how Habakkuk 3, verses 17 and 18 put it. He says there, though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olives should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls. Now, now none of those things mean a whole lot to us, all right? But, but in, the anci- in an ancient agrarian culture, I mean, imagine here absolute famine, death, death and devastation because that's what he's describing in that verse. I mean, if you're not producing food, there's no cattle, there's no crops, people start dying really fast. So so he is describing the darkest of circumstances, and yet what does he say? Yet I will exalt in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. So, So you won't always understand God's ways but we always know that he is faithful. Don't ever lose that anchor. Let every man be a liar, but God is true. I think this statement is also an important anchor whenever our world attacks the accuracy and the authority of Scripture. Sometimes uh, people will make very bold and very strong scientific claims that they have proven that the Bible's account of, of, like, of creation, for example, or, or history is, is false. And they'll say, we know it, we've proven it. You know, or, or they'll make emotional appeals, claiming that biblical morality is outdated or even evil. Or they'll boldly tell you, we have proven that God is not real or that the Bible is false. And, and so what do we do? And I think it's worth emphasizing that there are reasonable answers to, to all the objections that come up. But, but maybe you're watching the TV or you're talking to a coworker and they raise something and, and you don't quite know how to answer that question. Should, should your faith go up and down with your ability to answer those questions? I mean, absolutely not. I mean, remember Romans 3, verse 4 let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. You know, people can be wrong even when they are very confident that they are right. And there are many, many examples through history of times that people said, you know, for example, you know, this, you know, the Bible talks about this group of people and those people never existed. The Bible's wrong. And then 10 years later, oh, we found out these people really did exist. And that type of thing happens over and over and over. God is never wrong. So believe this book And always bind your logic to this book and to the foundational truth claims of Scripture about who God is and what truth is. But I think uh, the return of the text, Paul's main concern here is God's faithfulness to his promises to Israel. So, So when Paul says that God is true, he is answering the Jewish concern that God will keep his covenant, right? Because God had made... Incredible promises to Israel in the Old Testament. And so when he says here God is true, he is saying that that God will will do the things for Israel that he said he will do. And and Paul's going to expand on that in Romans chapter 9, for example, verses 4 and 5, and then at the end of chapter 11, verses 25 through 29. And he's going to say that God will fulfill every promise. He's going to stir a national revival someday. Israel is going to look at the one whom they pierced, and they are going to repent and be saved. And he will fulfill every promise. Romans eleven says God's promises are irrevocable, and so God is true. Sometimes it doesn't; we we can't see how he's going to be true, but he is always true. And, and then a second answer that Paul gives is that God demonstrates his oops went too far. Uh, God demonstrates his faithfulness. In judgment, not just in blessing. And so notice what he says at the end of verse 4. He says that just as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Now, now this is important because like Israel, we oftentimes have a narrow view of God's justice. So, So we want God to be just and faithful when we think we deserve something good. But when we sin or when we fail, we'd like it if God would conveniently forget his justice. But Paul reminds Israel, and he reminds us, that God demonstrates his faithfulness in judgment just as much as he does in blessing. And he proves that here by quoting from Psalm 51, verse 4. And, and of course, the context of Psalm 51, uh, is that, that David committed some horrible sins in, in, in his adultery with Bathsheba and then in the murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And Nathan the prophet confronts David for his sin. And in Psalm 51, he repents of that and pleads for God's forgiveness. And, um, and, and David here says, he says very clearly that God is justified or, or God is glorified In judging David. And therefore, Paul's point is, is that Israel's present judgment demonstrates God's faithfulness just as much as his future blessing. Now, we don't like that kind of faithfulness, but God is faithful in judgment just as much as in blessing. And and so we have to remember that God's judgment is always just, and it demonstrates his faithfulness. So, so, although from a human perspective, all right, if you're a Jew in, in Paul's day, they're, they're in captivity, just a few years after this, uh, the Roman general Titus is going to come into Jerusalem and flatten the temple and destroy everything there. You know, and so it looked like God had failed, and it looked like God had abandoned his people. But, but Paul says, God is faithful. God is faithful. He's faithful sometimes in blessing, but he's also faithful in judgment. And it's up to us to embrace all of God's faithfulness, not just the pleasant parts. You know, I've often been just amazed at the fact that you know in the book of Revelation it says that when God judges evil, we will not sit in heaven and cringe. We will worship God as he pours out wrath on evil. Because we will see his glory in that. And in seeing his glory, we will understand that it is right and good for him to judge evil. We will glorify him for for doing what is just. And that's not how we generally like to think. But it is true and it's important that we see that side of God's character. And then the third question that that comes up, comes up in verse five. In verse five says, but if our unrighteousness Demonstrates the righteousness of God. What shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I am speaking in human terms. So, so the question here is a really good one and a really tough one. If God is glorified by our unrighteousness, does that make him unrighteous? So, uh, probably, uh, really, what we ought to say here is God is glorified in the judgment of our unrighteousness. It would probably be a better way to put it. Does that make him unrighteous? Now that's a really tough question, but, but a really important one. So, so Paul just said in, in chapter, in, in verse 4b, that, that God, God manifests his righteousness. God is glorified in the judgment of sin. And verse 7 uh, really says the same thing. Verse 7 says, If my lie, if through my lie the truth of God abounds to his glory. So so the idea that, that Paul is laying out in these verses is that God is glorified. He is honored in the judgment of sinners. Now, um, because it shows his righteousness and a justice that would be, that would be very difficult to show if, if everything was perfect and right, right? Like if Adam and Eve never sinned and everything was always perfect, there would be major aspects of God's character that, that we would have a hard time ever appreciating because we would have no concept of sin, evil, suffering, and judgment for sin. Now, now, all of that makes really good sense on paper. But, but it's really hard to stomach when God is glorifying himself in judging you or judging someone that you love. And, and Paul's Jewish opponent feels the same way. He does not like the thought that God might be glorifying himself by judging Israel. But, but, and so, and so that's, that's a tough question. I mean, I mean, what's going on there? Is that right? Is that fair? But, but I think before we, we answer it, uh, in li- I, I think there's more going on here than just the question that the man states in, in light of the broader argument of Romans. And, and so I, I believe that ultimately what this man is doing in verses 5 through 8 is he is really pushing back on the gospel that Paul preached. So, so this man, he believes that he is a good person. He is a good Jew. He has served the Lord his whole life. He's memorized the law. He's tried to keep the law. So he thinks he is a good person who deserves God's salvation. And here comes Paul. And Paul's trying to say that he's a depraved sinner who can do nothing to save himself. And he needs to be saved by grace alone. So, So particularly, I mean, just look at what Paul says in Romans 3, verses 10 and 11. He says, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. Now, Paul's Jewish opponent, he doesn't like that. He thinks he's a good guy. You're trying to tell me I'm totally depraved, and I don't seek God, and I don't want God, and I'm, I'm a wicked person in need of salvation? And, and, and so, to push back on that gospel, what, what seems to be taking place is that this guy is asking, what right does God have to judge us for things that we can't help but do? If I'm a depraved sinner and I can't help but break God's law, then, then how is it fair for God to then turn around and judge me? You know, it'd be kind of like this. You know, let's imagine you've got a, you know, a third grade teacher, and it's the first day of third grade, and he says, kids, you are going to read the entirety of Moby Dick by the end of the school day. And if you do not read Moby Dick by the end of the school day, you are suspended for a week. Now, now we would think, that's absurd. Because I didn't look up how big Moby Dick is, but it's a big book. And, and, and so those kids could try as hard as they want all day long, but there's no way they're going to finish reading Moby Dick at the end of the day. So, so how would it be fair for, for that third grade teacher to suspend them for a week for for demanding of them something that they cannot possibly achieve. And what this guy is asking here is, how is it fair to punish someone for requiring something that is impossible? Well, that's a really good question. And and Paul begins to answer in verse 6. He says, may it never be, for otherwise, how will God judge the world? So, So the first part of his answer is, again, may it never be. In other words, we have no right to question God's righteousness. We may not understand how God's righteousness works, but Paul says, perish such a blasphemous thought as God is unrighteous. And frankly, that's really all the answer that we need. It's not my place as a finite sinner with a itty-bitty brain to question the justice and rightness of an infinite God. So if I have a problem with God's ways, the problem is always with me. The problem is not with God. Now I can't help but think here of, of the book of Job. Because you know Job goes through incredible suffering and, and, and throughout the middle of the book he, he, he attacks God and, and says that God is wrong in what he has done to me. And at the end of the book, I mean, God does not tell Job why he did what he did. He just says, Job, you have no right to, to accuse me of evil and unrighteousness. And Job responds in the last chapter of the book uh, by saying in Job uh, 42, uh, verses 3 and 4, Therefore I have declared what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, And you instruct me. And so Job says, you know, God, I got way out of line. And it's not my place to question you, to question your ways, or to accuse you of wrong. So I'm going to be quiet and I'm going to listen to you. And folks, that's the humility that we need before God. But God, of course, oftentimes graciously gives us a little more. And Paul does just that at the end of verse 6 when he says, For otherwise, how will God judge the world? And in that statement, Paul draws on an assumption that he shares with his Jewish opponent, and and namely, his Jewish opponent and Paul agree that God will someday, someday judge the pagan Gentiles. In fact, the Jews very much looked forward to God's judgment of the pagan Gentiles, because when God judged the pagan Gentiles, that would mean that he would fulfill all his promises to them. So, so just think of Jonah, for example, sitting outside Nineveh under his little vine, waiting for God to rain down fire on Nineveh and destroy it. So, so the Gentiles very much looked forward to and very much believed in the judgment of, of, of the Gentiles. And so in light of that, we, we should assume that the objection in verse 5 is primarily concerned with God's judgment of the Jews. So so the Jew, he doesn't mind God judging the Gentiles. He just doesn't want God judging him. And so he's asking, how is it fair for God to glorify himself by judging his own people? And Paul basically responds here at the end of verse 6 by saying, you can't have your cake and eat it too. If God is unfair in judging the Jews, that means he's unjust to judge the Gentiles, Because if he's unfair over here, he has no justice, no no standing by which he can judge others. And so the broader point, the the broader answer that, that Paul gives here is that we can't pick and choose where we want God to be just. He's either always just or he is entirely untrustworthy. Of course, we want to pick and choose. I mean, we really want God to be gracious to me. But we want him to kick the snot out of that jerk that, that hurt us over here. And, and you know what? What we ought to learn from that is maybe we aren't very good judges of justice. And, and we should just leave justice to God. I don't have to understand all of God's ways. I don't have to understand why God, you know, he seems to give this person such a good, easy life and why my life is hard or why he gives this person this country money and this country none, or, or whatever it might be. But I can rest in the fact that God is good and everything he does is right. And then the fourth question comes up in verses 7 and 8. He says, but if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported and in some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Now, and so the question here is, if God is glorified, all right, there we go. If God is glorified by our unrighteousness, should we sin more? And, um, and so the thought there is very similar to verse five. And, and, I, and, and so, you know, we get this right, and, and, and this is going to come up again. So, hey, You know, God is going to be glorified in the judgment of sin. Well, maybe I should just, I mean, and again, the guy does not believe this. All right, he's objecting to Paul. And he's saying, Paul, that is a that is a ridiculous claim. God is glorified in judging sin. If that's true, then we should just sin. Because God will be glorified in judging us. He's saying, Paul, you're a ridiculous, you know, you're you're, you're out of your mind. That's the point. And so the guy here, he's objecting, but, but of course, but as, as I said earlier with verse 5, you know, really it, it goes deeper, and he's objecting to this idea because ultimately, I believe he's objecting to Paul's doctrine of depravity and of sin. So, so he objected to the idea ultimately that he is a sinner who couldn't please God and stood hopelessly condemned and in need of salvation by grace alone. I mean, to the Jew, all of that sounds crazy. And so what he does here is, is he, he expresses his befuddlement at the gospel with what he believes are two necessary implications of the gospel. First, verse 7 asks, Well, if God is glorified through, through, the, uh, uh, through the sin of hopelessly condemned sinners, then how is it just for God to judge them? And so the thought here, again, is similar to, to my illustration about Moby Dick earlier. You know, that, that if, our, if my sin creates a sharp contrast with God that glorifies His righteousness and justice, then, then why try to be righteous? I mean, I, mean, it's just, I mean, they're saying, that's nuts, Paul. God can't possibly plan to glorify Himself in the judgment of Israel. And then the opponent thinks that he has nailed Paul to the wall with the implication of verse 8. Well, Paul, you know, you teach that we are saved by grace alone. So if our sin creates a sharp contrast with God that glorifies His righteousness, then why try to be righteous? We should sin more, that God's righteousness might be clearer. Now, now again, the guy does not believe that. He's just trying to pin down Paul and say that Paul's gospel is ridiculous and absurd and not true. And now, now, I recognize you might have a hard time following all of that, but these basic, same basic ideas are common today. You know, for example, you know, many people would object today. I, I've heard this many times to the doctrine of total depravity, the, the idea that, that, we are, that we are unable to please God, that we are doomed, lost in sin, they would object to that and object to election by saying that they make God's judgment unfair. You know, we, we don't like certain things, and there's other things as well that we can come up with, it, that, that we don't like certain aspects of what the Bible teaches, and so we say, that can't be true, because I don't like it. And that's really oftentimes all the, the argument that they're making. And I think as a side note, it's worth just mentioning that that. You know, when when we make arguments about theology or the nature of God, we, we have to stay anchored to what the Bible teaches. Because something can seem really logical and make perfect sense to you, but that doesn't mean that it's right. Because your perspective is this big. God's perspective is this big. And so we have to be careful about using sentiment and logic to, to displace scripture in our thinking. And whether we say it out loud or not, many people would also, you know, similar to what this guy's saying, use the freeness of God's grace in the gospel as an excuse to sin. You know, so, so we see this all the time. You know, we believe we're saved by grace alone. We believe that once we're saved, you're going to heaven and nothing can take it away. So, I mean, to some extent, we all do this a little bit at times. But some people run with the idea, well, hey, I've got my ticket to heaven. Why do I need to worry about living for God right now? You know, because it's not going to change anything. So I might as well do what I want. I mean, mean, doesn't that come up all the time? So how does Paul answer these objections? Well, we'll look at what he says at the end of verse 8. He simply says, their condemnation is just. And so that's a pretty sharp response. You know, Paul's saying, anyone who accuses God of injustice or who uses the gospel as justification to live a, a rebellious, ungodly life, Paul says that person deserves to go to hell. I and mean, Paul's saying, you know, I mean, I, not to be crass, but, but he basically responds to these questions by saying, go to hell. And that's really, I mean, that's the point. So so at least at this point, he he doesn't tease out any sort of complete answer to the questions. He just says, those are absurd questions. Now, now that's not to say that he couldn't give more complete answers, okay? So so for example, all right, and I think I probably need to come back to this. I used that third grade illustration of trying to read Moby Dick earlier, and and so you might wonder, well, what's the answer to something like that? Well, well, specifically, no one's going to be condemned for things they couldn't do. All right? You know, instead, they will be justly condemned for what they did. So, so the reality is, is that lost humanity is not feverishly trying to finish Moby Dick before the end of the day. They are running from God. They are rebelling against God every day of their lives, and so they will be judged for rebelling against God not for trying everything they could to please him and falling short and 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 so and so we have to understand that that God's judgment is just and and as well uh, to deal with the question in verse 8 chapter 6 is going to give a robust answer uh, to 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 that question and Paul's going to argue that if someone is truly born again that that spiritual transformation is at the core of the gospel's intent. And so if someone uses the freeness of God's grace as an excuse to to be lazy in fighting sin, then Paul is going to say it calls into question whether or not they have really understood and embraced the gospel. He's going to give a strong response. So so Paul's curt answer at the end of verse 8 is not an attempt to dodge the questions, but it is a strong rebuke For anyone who takes it upon himself to stand in judgment on God and his ways. And so it's a very appropriate, good answer. You know, I mean, you think as a parent, like sometimes your kids ask you questions and you take the time to give them a reasonable answer. And sometimes you just say, because I said so. Because... That has an important place in how they understand authority and their response to authority. And Paul's kind of doing the same thing here and saying, no, you are not allowed to question the justice and the faithfulness of God. And if you do, that is a wicked, wicked thing. And that's not to say that that if we've got questions, we don't, you know, sincere questions coming from a heart of humility or just... Just concerned that, that we don't ask and get answers to those things. But but to reach a point of accusing God of something that is evil or thinking that it is your place to stand in judgment of God is a serious, serious problem. So, so with that said, I'm going to wrap, pull all this together in, in six conclusions, which we'll get through these pretty quickly. So first of all, I just kind of said this one. It is not my place to judge God or to tell God what he should and shouldn't do. And again, I I can't help but think of Job here. That that Job, I mean, God strongly rebukes Job in Job 38 through 41 for claiming to sit in judgment on God. So so let's just take a moment and consider the main objection in verses 5 through 8. Now, sinners often object to the idea that God would prioritize his glory over the good of the sinner. And they're going to say, you know, if God glorifies himself in the judgment of sin, that is selfish and that is arrogant on God's part. people will say that very commonly. And so, but what they're not realizing when they make that claim is how foolish and arrogant they are for thinking that they are that important. You know, God is infinite, which means that I am infinitely smaller than God. So, So for me to think that, that I am worth more than the glory of God, is an absurdly arrogant claim. And so, because of that, God is right to pursue His own glory. And furthermore, they, they miss the fact that, that God's pursuit of His own glory is, is the pursuit of man's greatest good. You know, and I think, you know, an important thing we have to understand here is that is we oftentimes think that what I really need is a pain-free, comfy life. But, but there is no greater good that we can enjoy than to know the glory of God. So, so any attempt that, that we might make as sinners to pit God's glory against my good is just simply foolish. And, and as a general rule, you know, I just say here that, that when you do theology, The bigger your God is, the better. And so so all of this, I think, is really helpful as we try to process all the darkness of life in a sin-cursed world. Because we are natural worshipers of human comfort. We want to be comfortable. We want life to be easy. So, So we tend to think God is good when my life is comfortable, and we tend to think that God is unfaithful and bad when my life is uncomfortable. But the Bible is abundantly clear. That seeing God, knowing God, and being transformed into the likeness of God is a far greater value than my comfort. I and mean, Everything in the Bible drives to that end. There is no greater value in all the universe than to see God for who He is and to be like Him. And so from there, another conclusion is, is that we must embrace God the honor of glorifying God through suffering. You know, God can bestow few greater honors on his children than to call us to display his glory to others by removing our comfort. When people see you declare by your life and your words that Jesus is better than whatever he takes away from you, you serve him well and you please him. So if God's called you to do that, Embrace the honor. Embrace the privilege. Do not run madly from it. And then another important application of all this is humbly submit your logic to the boundaries of Scripture. You know, some of the worst ideas ever imagined happened because some guy grabs onto one idea in Scripture and, and they hold to that idea without anchoring it in everything else that the Bible says. So you can go to Barnes & Noble, you know, you can get on Amazon, you can find lots of books that quote a Bible verse and say a whole lot of things about that Bible verse that sound really good, but it's not anchored in everything else that the Bible says. And so if you're going to do good theology, if you're going to honor God, you know, and, and what it what really comes back to is that, is that they fall in love with their own logic or they fall in love with their own sentiment. And so if we're going to do good theology, if we are going to think well, if we are going to honor God, we've got to be very careful, very careful to anchor everything in Scripture. Just because something sounds logical to you does not mean it's biblical. And everything has to be anchored to what the text says. You know, so I get I mean I get just frustrated and antsy very quickly oftentimes. You know, and when, when we when people you know want to debate theology and they're not making Bible arguments, they're making their arguments. And and our arguments have a place. But at the end of the day, what matters is what's in here. So anchor everything to what this book says, and then finally and ultimately hold fast to God's character even when you don't understand his ways. It's easy to interpret bad circumstances as reflecting a bad God. And it's easy to to interpret God's patience as God's approval. And on and on we could go. And you will not always know what God is doing. But God tells us in His Word who He is. So stay anchored to the Bible. Trust Him with what He hasn't told you. And in every circumstance know that God is good God is faithful, and His ways are always just. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that, that our lives are in the hands of a faithful, good, and just God. And, and Lord, help us every day, in every circumstance, to stay anchored to what the Bible teaches to what we know to be true in Scripture. And Father, I pray that we would trust You. Oh Lord, I pray that Your Holy Spirit would strengthen our faith to believe You and to trust You when sometimes our circumstances and the people around us are screaming at us to believe something else. And Father, help us to glorify You in every circumstance and in every challenge, believing that You are good and faithful. And so, God, give us grace even this week to glorify your name and to please you in every circumstance. In Christ's name.